Good morning and welcome to fall. Welcome to chapel. I think the cooler temps are finally here in 46 degrees when I was doing the chores this morning felt really, really nice. Glad that you're here this morning. Some of you may know me, some of you may not know me, so I'll just give a brief introduction. Um, I do teach, teach in the criminal justice program. Um, we've had our program since 2014. We've had our first crop of graduates last year and expecting more this year. And so that's just one of the roles um, that I play in life. I've got a number of other roles that keep me busy. Um, I am a husband of 30 years. My wife, Bonnie, and I celebrated our anniversary this summer, 30 years. We have three children. Um, you probably know Erica in the president's office. Some of you know my youngest, Jared, as he was working in the cafeteria last year. And then Caleb is an engineer over in Great Bend. And so that's, that's a role that I have that um, keeps me busy. Um, along with my teaching responsibilities, I'm also a, a licensed attorney um, in the state of Kansas. I serve as the city attorney for the city of Lyons, just up the road eight miles. If you're going through Lyons, please don't speed. Um, I serve as the prosecutor in municipal court, and so that gets kind of sticky when I've got students in court, and, 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 and we deal with it, but um, that makes things a whole lot easier. Um, but that's not the role that has brought me here this morning. I also serve as one of three elders at the Sterling Church of Christ, a little white church building down at the south end of Broadway. Um, kind of looks like a 1980s or an 1880s church building because it is. Um, our building was built, I think, in 1884, the, the front portion of it. And so my responsibility is there. I have the opportunity to preach every Sunday. Um, you're more than welcome to join us. If you're still looking for a, a church home, we'd love to have you. Um, as a side note, we will feed you lunch every Sunday. So there is that. Um, but you're more than welcome to join us at that time. And, and so I find myself with this opportunity this morning to spend some time with you in the Gospel of Mark as we go through um, that story of Jesus's life this year. And I feel um, a little bit inadequate. Um, I don't mind talking about criminal justice related things and talking about the law. That's what my training is. I don't have any official training in theology or ministry. Um, I have an undergraduate degree in psychology psychology with a biblical studies minor, so I guess that maybe counts for, for something. Uh, a little intimidated by the three gentlemen sitting over here, very close to the front. Um, they assured me they didn't bring paper to take notes and critique me. Um, but I guess I come to you this morning wanting to share out of my passion for the Word of God. I've been preaching fairly regularly about it as long as I can remember, and so I spend time in God's Word. And one of the things that I found as I study is it's important for me to try to get a handle on who those original words were penned to. What was their situation? What was the author trying to tell those people 2,000 plus years ago? And so as we look at the gospel, Mark, I thought since we're here, you know, we're still in chapter one, we're very early in Mark's gospel, that perhaps it would be beneficial for us to spend a little bit of time kind of laying that groundwork, laying a little bit of the foundation of this letter. Who was it written to? Who wrote it? Um, and what might it have meant to um, the people of, of that time? So as we look at the gospel itself, there's really not a whole lot there for us to go on. Um, the author doesn't tell us his name. 
And in most of Paul's letter, Paul introduces himself and, and we know um, the letters that he has written. We don't know that with this gospel, but we do know that from very early on in church history, um, it's been accepted that the writer was Mark. His name eventually was put on as the title to this letter. Um, very likely that this is the same John Mark mentioned in the book of Acts that was a companion to Peter and also a, a, a companion with Paul would have been known to his readers of the time. So we're not, I'm not gonna really lay much more foundation than that and then just to accept what most folks have come to believe that this was written by Mark. When was it written? Um, most scholars will peg the authorship of this letter sometime in probably the 60s AD. Um, you know, sometime within that generation or so after the death of Christ um, is probably likelihood. You know, some posted, you know, toward the end of the 60s. Um, but I think getting that kind of that general feel for what was going on in that period of time may help us to understand a little bit more about Mark's message. As far as who he was writing to, it seems if we look at Mark's gospel, that he was probably writing to mostly a Gentile audience. Now we say Gentile, we're just referring primarily to those Christians that weren't Jews. They weren't of Jewish ancestry. Um, everyone else was considered um, Gentiles. It's likely that Mark was writing to an audience, um, possibly in Rome, um, he could have been in Rome when he, when he penned this letter. There's not a whole lot of concrete evidence to that, but um, there's some evidence to suggest that might be the case. But at the very least, it appears that Mark was writing to probably Christians that were living in or around Rome in an area under Roman control. And so I think as we, as we look at this passage, and, and we're going to take a minute here to look at what Jesus, um, the activities he's involved in, in Mark chapter 1. We'll start with verse 21 here in a minute. But I think it's important to realize that Roman rule at that time for Christians was a very difficult rule to live under. If you know anything about that period of time in history, um, the late 60s in Rome was a very dangerous time to be a Christian. At that time, the Roman emperor that was um, more or less on the throne in Rome was a guy named Nero. Um, Nero had a terrible reputation um, as history has recorded things about Nero. One of the things that he is most familiar for um, and most known for was his harsh treatment of Christians living in Rome. Nero was emperor in Rome from AD 54 to 68. Um, he eventually committed suicide when he saw that his, his um, realm was slipping away from him. But in AD 64, there was an event that occurred in the city of Rome that um, really garnered much attention, and that was a great fire. There was a fire in Rome that destroyed most of the city of Rome. Um, of the 14 wards that Rome was divided into, three were completely destroyed by the fire. Another seven were heavily damaged. And so as soon as the fire was done, as soon as the, the um, flames had cleared and the smoke was still kind of in the air, talk started going around as to what caused the fire. And there were those that were saying that Nero had actually caused the fire or had the fire started for his own purposes. Uh, one of, one of uh, Nero's pet projects was his palace. 
And he eventually ended up with a palace that was called the Golden House that sat on a, a, a hundred acre estate. Eventually he would place a statue um, within that estate of himself that was about a hundred feet tall and nearly bankrupted the, the Roman treasury um, as he built this palace. But many thought that he, was, that he started that fire um, to make way for this urban renewal project of his, to clear the land, um, clear the old buildings so that he could have this expansion of his palace. And so after the fire um, had subsided, the rumors started going around that, that Nero had started the fire. Nero was responsible for that. And try as he may, he couldn't quelch those rumors. He tried with um, providing um, tax relief assistance and, and giving out free things to some of the people that had been affected by the fire and all these things, but to no avail, they still kept talking about Nero as starting the fire. So he decided that the best way to get the focus off of himself was to take and put that focus onto somebody else. And so he chose as a scapegoat for the fire, the Christian community in Rome. So he started um, the story that the Christians were the ones that actually were responsible for the fire in Rome. And he wasn't satisfied with just the story. Um, he started an active persecution of Christians uh, that has really um, not been duplicated since that time. Um, Nero, if you don't know much about Nero, he was not a, a, a real nice guy. Um, he had a terrible history. If you look in his past, he actually had his mother stabbed to death in her home. Um, because she had tried to promote a stepbrother ahead of him um, in the, the, the line of, of leadership there in Rome. His first wife, that was an arranged marriage, he actually had her exiled and then executed. His second wife, um, he killed in a fit of rage, the uh, historians say, with a single kick to her belly. Um, not a nice guy. Um, and when it came to this notion that, that he needed to get the heat off of himself and onto the Christians for the burning of Rome, he was not nice either. So the Christians in Rome at this time suffered horrendous persecution um, under Nero. If you look at the historical accounts, it is said that they were wrapped in the uh, skins of wild animals and basically fed to the dogs. They were dismembered by dogs. Uh, crucifixion, as we well know from the death of Christ, was a, a common form of execution that the Romans used extensively. Um, and Nero had many, many Christians executed by crucifixion. It's even said that Nero would use the bodies of Christians as they hung on these crosses as lanterns for his evening garden parties at the palace. This was the type of environment, things that were going on for Christians in Rome at the time that Mark pins his gospel. And so as I think about Mark's message to those Christians, they need a message of hope. They need something that they can hold on to because life is really difficult for Christians at this time. They all know somebody that has died for their faith. They all know somebody who was betrayed probably by a friend or family member and turned over to the Romans to be prosecuted and persecuted because of what they believe.
And so I truly believe that Mark in his gospel is trying to provide them hope, something that they have to latch onto, something that is, that is more eternal than what they're currently experiencing. So if we think of those events as a backdrop for the story that Mark tells of Jesus, I think it can add something for us. So if we, if we pick up in our text, in Mark chapter 1, we're beginning, we're going to be in, in verse 21, and here Jesus has, um, has just completed selecting some of his first disciples um, that he had sought out as they were going about their vocations, and now we find him in the city of Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was located on the, the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee, a fishing community, and we see Jesus on the Sabbath in the synagogue. So Mark writes, they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly, come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever. And they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and the demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak, because they knew who he was." As I was looking about this passage and thinking about um, what to share with you this morning, the thought that kept, came, that kept coming back to me was the authority of Jesus. In Mark's gospel, over and over, he's going to establish the authority of Jesus. The authority that Jesus has um, in this passage here over demons. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time uh, uh, with regard to what these evil spirits were. Suffice it to say that they were messengers of Satan. They did Satan's bidding. And Mark clearly doesn't spend a whole lot of time explaining this to his readers because they, they understood it and accepted it, apparently. So we have these messengers of Satan that know who Jesus is, and Jesus has the authority to, over them. He commands the demon to come out of this man, and the evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. This evil spirit, this demon, was not able to resist the authority of Jesus. Next, I think we see Jesus showing his authority over our physical bodies, over our humanity, over our frailties. And so he comes to the home of Simon, Peter, and Simon's mother-in-law um, has a fever. Jesus goes in and heals her. Now, there's numerous other healings that occur in, in Mark's gospel. Uh, it's always Jesus showing compassion on those who are afflicted with these ailments. But Jesus has the authority to command these illnesses to leave, and they cannot resist. 
We saw earlier in the passage just above this when Jesus was calling his disciples that all he had to do was call them and they followed, they submitted to his authority. In other places in Mark's gospel, we'll see that Jesus has authority even over the natural world, over the wind and the waves, and he commands and they respond. We see that Jesus even has authority over life and death. He has the authority to be able to give life back to those that are dead. And so as I thought about Jesus's authority and how Mark establishes that authority in his gospel, I thought what that must have sounded like to these Christians living under Roman rule. To realize that Nero wasn't the final authority. Even though he was making life very horrible for Christians at that time, that wasn't the end of it. There was hope that these Christians had because they believed in and they worshiped the true authority, the final authority. And so as I was thinking about this, this notion of authority, it led me um, to a passage out of the book of Revelation in chapter 19. Um, here again, feeling somewhat out of my element as Dr. Milhouse did his dissertation on the book of Revelation. So I'm going to have a few things to say, and hopefully um, I won't go astray here either. But I think John in the book of Revelation gives us an amazing picture of Jesus as that ultimate authority. So the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verse 11, listen to this picture that John paints of Jesus. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His, ours are, his eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean." Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. King of kings and Lord of lords. Nero thought he was king of the world at the time as he led Rome. His authority was limited and very temporary. But we serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I think that was the message of encouragement that Mark had for those Christians that he was writing to some 2,000 years ago. But then I think about today. I think about where we are today some 2,000 years later. What about Jesus's authority now? What about Jesus's authority in my life? What about Jesus's authority in your life? Do we have the ability to resist the authority of Jesus? The demons did not. The waves and the wind could not resist Jesus's authority. Do we have the opportunity to do that today? And I would say yes, but only temporarily. Some of you may have already surrendered your life to Jesus and that you've submitted to his authority. And some of you maybe have not. 
Hopefully, for those of you who have not, during your time at Sterling College, you'll encounter the gospel. As we go through Mark's gospel, you'll encounter that message of Jesus' life, that life that he came and lived perfectly and flawlessly so that he could be that ultimate sacrifice for us. That life that was given for us was buried, but then he rose again. That's the gospel message. Jesus came, he lived, he died, but he was raised again. That's the authority that he has. Some of you may not have um, surrendered to that, and I pray that during your time here that you will, and perhaps even today. But I would submit that submitting and surrendering yourself to the authority of Jesus is not optional permanently. Paul, in the book of Philippians, shares these thoughts from Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6, as Paul describes Jesus. He says, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. We're going to spend the rest of our time this year in the book of Mark looking at that servant nature of Jesus and the way that he lived his life. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He suffered that execution on that Roman cross for us. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Submitting to the authority of Jesus is not optional. We will all submit. Either now, in this life, as we live our life and surrender to him, or on that final day when Jesus returns to judge the world, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. He has that ultimate authority over us. We can resist it for a while, but we won't be able to resist it forever. After looking at the, the, the story of Nero and looking at some of the history, I think all those atrocious things that he did, but one day... Nero will submit to the authority of Jesus. His knee will bow and his tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord.